thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Pure Sports Pod. This is Matt Wyrick along with Kevin Haswell coming at you from the Pure Sports Network. We have had so much going on in the NBA playoffs. A lot of upsets here uh, in these conference finals uh, with the Rockets taking one game last night uh, to move the series in 1-1 against the Warriors and the Celtics out to a surprising 2-0 lead, uh, really just blowing all expectations out of the water. The Celtics have been a team that has continued again and again to defy expectations, similar to what we saw with the Eagles uh, during their playoff run, uh, despite not having Carson Wentz. I mean, you can call Kyrie Irving the Carson Wentz of the uh, Celtics here, but they've continued to chug along without him. Terry Rozier filling in well. They've gotten contributions from all over the court. Al Horford having himself a crazy series. It has been a lot of fun. And of course, over on the Rockets side of things, uh, they're trying out different offensive schemes, and, and it's clearly that in, in Game 2, a blowout win for them, a uh, big win for them. Uh, we are seeing you know, some really impressive offensive basketball being played. So, Kevin, how are you walking away from all this? You know, it's great. Uh, we got two ex- exact opposite series, like you said. One is you know, two of the best offenses in NBA history going out with the Warriors and the Rockets. And the other series, it's a more grinded out. Uh, you know, who can, who can be clutched down the stretch and the Celtics have been clutched. Um, but you know, the other difference would be, you know, the Celtics go up 1-0 in that series on the Cavaliers. And you think, you know, the Cavaliers would come back, make some adjustments, play some different players, different minutes, uh, maybe change their offensive scheme to get more guys involved, but they just don't. Uh, it's pitiful. Lose by, um, <clears throat> they lose by 13 in the second game after losing by 25 in the first. I mean, I'm just very disappointed in the Cavaliers, and, you know, it, they're the exact opposite of the Rockets. The Rockets got blown out in game one, uh, and, you know, they came back, they made their adjustments, and uh, they came out a better team, and, you know, it, it's really a, a different series. So, uh, I, I really, you know, I really am irritated by the Cleveland Cavaliers right now because they're just not making adjustments. I don't understand uh, how they trade for Jordan Clarkson, Rodney Hood, Larry Nance, all these guys – and they only play them a combined, you know, 30, 35 minutes. It's it's ridiculous in my mind. And, you know, I know we'll jump into it, so I won't go off now. But, uh, you know, what a pitiful series so far for the, for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And, you know, props to Mike D'Antoni and the Rockets for, for really turning around and getting a huge win last night. Yeah, we'll go ahead and, and start with that Cavs-Boston series. And, you know, Al Horford has been kind of the guy chugging along with this offense, not really necessarily leading the team in scoring here, you know, only 15 points in his last game, uh, but did add in 10 rebounds, 4 assists, uh, had himself a great game, Jalen Brown led the way there, 23 points, Terry Rozier had 18, Al, uh, Jason Tatum 11, and, and Marcus Morris 12, so, you know, they're getting contributions from all over uh, the field, meanwhile, the Cavs, it's a completely different story, James, uh, LeBron obviously goes off 42 points, 12 assists, 10 rebounds, Kevin Love uh, chips in 22 and, and, and 13, or 15, sorry, um, but outside of that, they're really not getting, you know, we, we talked before the series uh, on Monday about how, you know, we were noticing that some of these players were stepping up and that if he had a supporting cast, there, there's nothing LeBron James really can't do. And he certainly, you know, had a clear path to the finals. But the team, it, you know, this has been the same storyline all year. The guys around LeBron, you know, are not stepping up in the ways that he needs them to. LeBron can only carry this team so far. You know, he's definitely the best player in the NBA. There's no doubt about it. And, and, and playing out of his, 
you know, league in a, in a way that we haven't even seen him ever rise his performance to before. And he is single-handedly carrying this team, but it's ultimately is going to be proven, going to prove to be not enough. And we thought that was going to be exposed, you know, in the finals against a team like the Rockets or the Warriors, who, you know, have such prolific offenses that there's no way a team like the Cavs could keep up with LeBron, you know, scoring almost half the team's entire points uh, as he did in game two here. And, and, and but instead, it's the Celtics who are exploiting that. Uh, and, and honestly, I'm not really sure how we didn't see it coming with just how balanced this is, this this team is, how well-rounded defensively they are, and, and well-coached. I mean, got to give a lot of credit to Brad Stevens here. I mean, if he's not considered, you know, the top three best coaches in the NBA already, he's definitely in that conversation now. And he's leading his team to what looks like to be, you know, another uh, NBA Finals appearance for one of the most storied franchises in NBA history, and I'm, I'm honestly, I'm just surprised we all didn't see it coming sooner. I think you're getting a little ahead on this series. I know it's 2-0, uh, but both of those games were played in Boston. You know, I wouldn't count out the Cavaliers yet. Wouldn't would never count out LeBron James. Okay, you know, this is the same guy. This is the same guy. This is the same guy. This is the same guy that came down three-one against one of the best teams in NBA history. Who would have thought he would have came back in that series? He won three straight games to win that series. I wouldn't count him out yet. I, I know there's a lack of adjustments with this team, uh, but the way that LeBron's playing, you, you have to think going back to Cleveland, they have a shot to at least take this series to seven games, win their games at home, and take it to seven. Um, and if not, I mean, you, you look, if they can take it to seven, I mean, LeBron James is you know one of the most clutch players in NBA history when it comes to game six, game seven, elimination games. He's one of the best at it. But I wouldn't count this Cavaliers team LeBron, out there. The Cavs aren't even letting LeBron get to the point where he can be clutch. I mean, you know, when he comes off the court, you know, never mind LeBron's minus nine plus minus, obviously, you know, from last game. But, you know, uh, Green, uh, what's his name? Green. Jeff Green had a minus 17. Kevin Love had a minus 10. I mean, everybody on the team had a minus that, other than the two players who played Matt, only two minutes Matt, in the game. You can't, you can't look at plus minuses in a blowout win because everyone's just going to be minus. It, 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 it's irrelevant. Because everyone on that roster is at negative right now. Yes, Jeff Green's negative 17 is a lot more than everyone else, so that can be highlighted. But when you look up and down, LeBron James, I don't care if his plus-minus is a negative 9. He scored 42 points at 12 assists, 10 and rebounds. I'm not, so I'm not that really, away from that really, I'm not that really invalidates the plus-minus argument in this game. I think it, it, it's no. obviously the supporting cast. And like you said before, they bring in all these guys, you know, Larry Nance Jr. and, and Calderon, and, and, uh, not Calderon, but, you know, they bring in all these players to, to kind of su be a supporting cast here. And one, they're not playing. And two, they're not playing effectively. And I mean, you, you don't even have to look, you look past the plus minus. Their, their point totals are, you know, no one's breaking above 10. Kyle Korver scored 11. That's the only other player to hit double digits. And, and this has just been a trend. Uh, you know, very up and down, very streaky. Yes, maybe they'll they'll turn it on at home a little bit, but I can't imagine with the Celtics having home court advantage here. You know, obviously in the in the seven game series, they're going to have four games in, in Boston if it were to go that far. You know, Boston's going to hold that edge, and I can't see Cleveland winning a road game. No, and and yes, they'll have to win a road game because they they you know the Celtics have home court advantage they earned it in the regular season, and that's not what I'm arguing here. What I'm arguing is. This is not going to be a four-game sweep. This is not going to be a five-game series. It's going to at least go six or seven games, and I would not count out the Cavaliers. You know, I, 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 what I saw last game was a lot more promising than what I saw in game one. Game one, it was just the LeBron James, uh, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't even just the LeBron James show. He only had 15 points. But still, outside of that, the supporting cast was awful. 
Um, you know, Kevin Love had 17, Rodney Hood at 11, Jordan Clarks had 10. They only had four players in double digits, and outside of that, they had, you know, George Hill with five, Kyle Corbett with four, J.R. Smith with four. I mean, game two was a little different of a story. You know, Kevin Love really showed up, 22 points, 15 rebounds, uh, nine for 18 from the field for a good 50% field goal percentage. Um, you know, I, I really think, you know, they're going to come around. I think the problem is they got to make adjustments to Ty Lue. Ty Lue has not made any adjustments in this series. He's gone with the playoff veterans that he has on this roster, and, and that's a huge problem because – uh, guys like J.R. Smith uh, and Tristan Thompson really aren't getting it done offensively. And right now, it's not the defense that's the problem because the defense with the Cavs is always going to be the issue no matter who they have on the floor. I think it's you know not only an effort thing, they just don't have talented defensive players, but they're missing the offense. So they, you know, they need to put guys out like Rodney Hood, like you talked about, Larry Nance. Uh, Jordan Clarkson needs to get more minutes. I mean, that's... For a game that you only scored 94 points, I don't know how you don't have Jordan Clarkson out on the floor playing more minutes, uh, you know, playing at all at this point. Because, you know, with the Lakers, and early when he came over, he was, you know, a really good uh, scorer. And I, I, I just, I, it frustrates me so much to watch the Cavaliers play because their problem is the offense. And this is why the Celtics is beating them, or beating them because they're saying, hey, LeBron, you can have your 40 and a triple-double but the rest of your team's not going to beat us, and that's that's fine. So, you know, 42 points, 12 assists, 10 rebounds, great line for LeBron James. But outside of that, I mean, you go up and down, and they had one other guy other than Kevin Love scoring double digits, and it was Kyle Korver, who, you know, I don't think should get as many minutes either. I don't think he's quick enough to be able to guard some of the Celtics' uh, wing players and, you know, guards. So down the, str- the rest of the series, the Cavaliers need to give more minutes to Jordan Clarkson and Rodney Hood because – you know, the problem is offensively they have no one else and those are the two of their those are two of their best offensive players, um, and they're not even giving them a chance. I mean, combined eleven minutes in game two, it's it's inexplicable. I mean the Cavs, in order to come back in this series, just need you need they need to make adjustments and we'll see if Ty Lue makes them, but you know, there's so much talent on this roster and they're just not putting it together. You know, I'm gonna leave it at this. The Cavs in game one I, I gave it to the Celtics that LeBron had an off night. You know, there, there's no way that the Cavs are going to win when LeBron's scoring less than 20 points in a game. You know, that was that was going to be Boston's, you know, go Boston's way no matter what. But this game, the Celtics, even though the score, you know, is only a 13, you know, margin here, it just played like a much bigger win for them. Uh, and they pay, played really well in the second half, too. I mean, Cleveland really faded down the stretch, only scoring 39 points uh, in the second half to, uh, you know, Boston's 59. So it, it really... Matt, what, Matt, what are you talking about that? there? What? Matt, the Cavs, the Cavs were up, like, seven points at halftime. They played terrific in the first That's half. That's what I'm saying. In the I, second half, they so, played. So, so I don't understand where you're getting this, you know, this 13 points was a lot more than the game, or a lot less than the game actually What Like, the game was close throughout. It was I close mean, it was, until the second was, half. They had a third quarter where they out, like Boston outscored Cleveland 36 to 22 and, and absolutely took over yes, the lead. Yes, and, and then, then and after the third after the third quarter, they're only up seven. So how how is it not close? It was a because close game Cleveland throughout. Was quickly fading, you could easily see it by watching the effort level of these players. It just didn't look like they cared. I mean, it was it was obvious that this was a team that really didn't have its heart on the court and and when you know Boston who is fueled by so much passion you can easily see it on their faces you know saw it in the energy level with guys hitting the floor screaming you know the Marcus Morris image of him screaming uh you know that 
that's the kind of fire that this Cleveland team needs, and it doesn't have it. And, you know, they, they walk out of here only scoring 94 points. It's because, you know, they're not putting in that extra effort to, to move down the court and transition. They're not going for that extra rebound. And, and that's what's going to be the difference in this series. So if Cleveland really wants to win, you know, obviously they're going home, and it's easier to fuel off energy in your home court, and I get that. And, and they're probably going to steal a win on these next two games. Maybe they, they bring it to 2-1 and, and gain some momentum, and you never know what's going to happen. But... I just like this Boston Celtics team because they play with more passion, they're a more well-rounded team, and they have a better defensive unit. And, and there's really you know, no advantage that the Cavs have other than the fact that LeBron's on the court. And yes, that is a huge advantage. He is the best player in the world and can single-handedly win games for his team, but he's not going to be able to single-handedly win four. And that's what it looks like he's going to have to do if they're going to get past the Celtics. And, and Matt, I, I completely agree with most of the takes. I... I do not believe in the Cavs to win this series, but I think we're jumping to conclusions a little too fast. The Celtics did their job. They won both of the games at home. That's how that's how these series work. It's really easy to win at home. It's really hard to win on the road, and it's really hard to win on the road when you're facing the best player in the world. So, you know, I think we need to wait until they play the two games in Cleveland to really make our judgment because the Celtics did their job. Now it's the Cavaliers' turn. If they don't show up to play, if they don't win one of these next two, if they don't win both of these games at home, then this series is over. They can't go down three, one against a, you know, uh, you know, a really good defensive team like the Celtics. So if they can tie it up two two, then we got quite the series, but, uh, you know, I, I think we got to wait to see if the Cavs pull out their side of, um, the job. We'll have to see. Well, moving over to the Western Western conference, the Rockets pulled out a surprising 22 point win, uh, over the Warriors winning 127, 105. And the Splash Brothers had a pretty off night. Clay Thompson walking away with only eight points. Steph Curry, 16. Uh, and, you know, we got a really good performance out of P.J. Tucker. James Harden had 27. Uh, you know, this is a very – and Eric Gordon, 27 as well off the bench. So a, a very good win for the Rockets who kind of shook up their offensive mentality here. In, in game one, you saw a lot more isolations. Uh, Mike D'Antoni who kind of, you know, brought the ISO offense into the NBA as, as you know – kind of really showed the NBA how offenses should be run uh, and, and, you know, was able to play his own game here by switching around, kind of having Chris Paul have the offense work around him a little bit more than Harden in terms of less isolation and more ebb and flow kind of offense, more, you know, passing, more uh, assists overall. And it worked out well for them. They were able to steal a win. Uh, obviously, it's at home, so they're now going to have to go to Golden State for two games, which is going to be a very tough task here. I don't think that this this win for the Rockets, unlike how the Celtics played, really is a definition of how we're going to see them play over the rest of the series, especially having them to play two games against Golden State up next. Um, but, you know, th these performances out of Curry and Clay are definitely very, very concerning. And obviously, you know, we're going to have Harden and Durant go at it in terms of scoring margin uh, and, and dropping, you know, 30, 40 plus points. Uh, but it, it comes down to can Steph and, and Clay, you know, of those three players, at least two need to be on their best game in order for the Warriors to really dominate teams like they have. Uh, and, and that just didn't happen in this game. And yes, that was definitely, you know, an off night for them, but I don't think necessarily we're going to be seeing that kind of poor offense production uh, from those guys. You know, this is a series that with, with Steph, you know, dealing with these this ankle injury, uh, still necessarily not 100%. We're going to need Clay to really show us who he is uh, and really step up and be the man uh, on this offense in a little in more situations than we're used to. And, you know, in this game he didn't, but you know, he's Clay Thompson, one of the best shooting guards in the NBA, and I have full faith that the Warriors are still going to pull out a win in this series. Yeah, you know, I looked into some of the stats at 538 I had this morning. 
you know, the Rockets actually didn't really change up their offense. They actually had more isolation plays in Game 2 compared to Game 1. They had 46 in Game 2, 45 in Game 1. But the difference, I mean, I don't know if you if you watch the game, but the Rockets had so many more passes on each possession. I mean, whether it seemed like in Game 1 they were running down the shot clock, you know, really forcing themselves to take a last-second shot in the shot clock, like almost every possession. In Game 2, you know, they were really passing around, waiting for the open shot, and it made a huge difference. I mean, uh, you know, it was kind of the same situation with Game 1 with the Rockets where, you know, James Harden and Chris Paul were going to get theirs. You know, they combined um, for, you know, 65 points in Game 1. Uh, but in Game 2, they only combined for 43 because the supporting cast was there. You know, 22 points from P.J. Tucker, who was, you know, terrific offensively and defensively. I mean, he only missed one shot from the field on nine attempts, only missed one three on six attempts. Uh, Trevor Ariza had 19 points. Uh, a big reason why uh, they would be, other than, you know, the offensive production from Eric Gordon, uh, Trevor Ariza, and P.J. Tucker, it was having a Trevor Ariza in the game was a huge difference, I think. You know, in game one, he got into foul trouble early on. In the third quarter, he had five fouls. He really couldn't play majority of the second half because of the foul trouble. And, you know, I think he's the best He's the best defender on this team, especially, at, you know, guarding guys like Clay Thompson and Kevin Durant. And, you know, he was able to stay in the game. He had 19 points, six assists, four rebounds, two steals. He really did it all. Uh, seven for nine from the field, four for four from the free throw line. I really liked how, you know, the Rockets offense, you know, I don't think it changed at all stylistic-wise, but I think they involved – they, they try to get everyone involved offensively. I know Shaquille O'Neal after the game on TNT uh, talked about, you know, there's never really been a championship team that's been led by one or two players. It's always been a team effort. And this Rockets team showed that they are a championship contender because they can get everyone involved. And this is why they are so successful during the regular season. Uh, you know, it'll be very interesting to see how game three goes because it's going to go back to Golden State. The Warriors are definitely going to adjust. Steve Kerr was not very happy with his team yesterday. Uh, the turnovers... Uh, they actually had more turnovers than the Rockets, which was, you know, a big, big problem with the Rockets in Game 1. Um, in Game 1, the Rockets had 16 turnovers, and the Warriors had 9. Uh, in Game 2, uh, I believe the Warriors had, they had 15 turnovers, and the Rockets had 14. So, you know, the Rockets uh, forced more turnovers and really uh, made threes in transition, and that, and that was the difference in this game. Uh, the question for the rest of the series has got to be, you know, someone we talked about before the series even started, how are the Rockets going to slow down Kevin Durant? I don't think they can. Uh, he had 38 points last night um, and 30, let's see, 37 points in game. So he's averaging 37 and a half points in this series, shooting over 50% from the field. Uh, you know, I just don't, I don't see how the Rockets slow him down the rest of the series. And that's why I still go with the Warriors. Um, but the Rockets definitely, you know, made it a lot interesting, a lot more interesting of a series. Yeah, I mean, uh, I figure that the Rockets would steal a win. I mean, James Harden was my MVP pick for this year, and you know, I always think that the MVP, the best, one of the top three players in the NBA, and no matter what team you're ever playing in a, in a seven-game series, that player is going to get you a win. And you know, Harden did, you know, score 27 points, 10 rebounds. Uh, three assists, not necessarily, you know, an insane game by any standards, especially in today's NBA, but was, you know, clearly the the offensive focal point here. Uh, but Chris Paul, you know, came in and, and I think 
it was so funny that beginning at the start of the year, people were saying, you know, how can Chris Paul and James Harden coexist on the court at the same time? What, how is this offense going to work? You know, with them constantly, you know, two guys that are definitely ball dominant players, and it really has been awesome to see. You know, especially when they're both on the court. You know, you, you talk about okay, when when Paul's on the bench, James Harden's obviously going to be playing more of a, a selfish point than than Paul would. Paul's obviously a better passer. Uh, and a guy who is just known for spreading the ball around a little bit more. Harden is certainly a guy who, who drives the lane and, and can pull up uh, for a three-pointer when he needs to. Although, you know, he, only went, he went three for 15 on threes uh, in this game, so certainly an off night. Uh, you know, if he was hitting more threes, this would have been an even bigger blowout, uh, which is just crazy to think about. So uh, I've had a lot of fun watching this Rockets team all year. Uh, their offensive style is just so fun to watch. And, you know, on the, on the Warrior side of things, you know, obviously Kevin Durant is going to be, you know, the focal point of here, especially with Curry, you know, dealing with this injury. He's, he's playing, you know, 34 minutes a game, not necessarily, uh, you know, limited by a minute standpoint. But, uh, you know, that's obviously going to be in the back of his mind uh, when he's making, you know, quick movements. You're, you're seeing him, you know, he got crossed up by Chris Paul twice in the series already. Uh, you know, falling to the floor. I have a feeling that's probably because he just doesn't want to put as much pressure on that ankle uh, as he could necessarily, you know, moving over to his left. Uh, that can be, you know, a dangerous game if you're if you're trying to rehab from an injury. So uh, I, I do think this Warriors team is a much better team than the Rockets. You know, they have the star power. And now that they you know are going back to Golden State, you know, that can't be a good sign for the Rockets. I have a feeling they're going to go back to Houston for game five, down 3-1. Uh, and, you know, maybe they get one more win out of it. But I have a feeling that Golden State's going to be wrapping up this series rather quickly. Even though Houston did show us a lot in this game of, of what they're capable of, Golden State is just, you know, a, a whole behemoth of a different kind of game. And I, I can't pick against them uh, until they lose. Yeah, no, and back to Steph Curry. I know you talked about him. Uh, you know, he's been really kind of exposed in this series. I think there's a lingering... Uh, injury there. I know you, you talked about the ankle, but you know he also has a lot of knee, he's had a lot of knee issues over the last couple of years, and I think it's affecting his lateral movement. Uh, you know he's only averaging uh, you know 17 points a game, 16 points a game, uh, shooting below 50 percent, uh, not really hitting threes. One for five in game one, one for eight in game two. I mean, this is one of the best three point shooters in NBA history, and he's uh, two for 13 in the series from three. They're going to really need him to come around. Also on the on the defensive side of the ball, the Rockets are just switching onto him every time. You know, really exposing his lateral movement on the defensive uh, end of the floor. I mean, really every time James Harden gets the ball, they try to you know do a pick uh, and try to switch on to Steph Curry because I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, I don't know the exact numbers, but from just watching, Harden's making about 70, 75 percent of his shots that you know Curry's guarding him on. Uh, he just doesn't have the lateral movement, doesn't have the strength, the height. And it's, it's really getting exposed in this series. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do because Sean Livingston is a bigger guard, uh, probably more able to guard a guy like James Harden, who's 6'6". Uh, so we'll see if, if you know they play Livingston a little bit more, not to take away from Curry's minutes, but maybe have them both out there on the floor so that they can you know add some more uh, defense to the guard position, uh, especially you know with them having Klay Thompson out there. Uh, you know, it would be pretty good to have Sean Livingston and Klay Thompson side-by-side. But, you know, the it will be interesting to see, like you said, if, if the Rockets go down 3-1, the series is most likely over. So it's essential that they grab at least one game in Golden State. If they don't, they go down 3-1, the series is all, uh, all it's, you know, it's said and done. And, uh, you know, hats off to them for making their adjustments, but uh, they have, you know, the blunt of the work right in front of them. 
and they got a winning game in Golden State. Yeah, I mean, if they do win a game over in California, I'll be willing to reconsider, you know, picking them to win this series. But until I see the Warriors go down, and, and honestly, it has to be in a fashion like this where the Rockets just kind of flat out outplay them, then I, I'm going to stick with Golden State for now. Uh, just because, you know, even when they don't turn it on necessarily, you always know that there's a potential to do it at any time. They're a team that can flip the switch so well, uh, and we've seen them do it time and time again. So not counting Golden State out until we kind of get to see that. Now, it's going to wrap up our NBA portion of the show. Um, we'll be following these games closely, obviously, moving forward and looking forward to some really good series, some great basketball with some really, you know, frontline storylines here. Uh, that have just really been dominating the sport over the past you know, several months. Now, looking over, uh, kind of taking an overarching view of sports here, so the Supreme Court uh, earlier this week released a ruling basically striking down a federal law that prohibited sports betting in places outside of Nevada. Obviously, Las Vegas is in Nevada, and it was the one place where you were able to you know, have legally have bookies. And this was something that was kind of prevalent uh, going on around the country, uh, New York Governor uh, Chris Christie, or sorry, New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, who now is out of office, led this bill uh, for New Jersey to kind of break into this market a little bit. And they are that state is already starting to lay out some new um, things that are going to be going on in terms of how you can bet, where you can bet, what kind of teams will be involved, that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, it's looks to me like this could be a massive revelation uh, for not just you know, sports fans, but for sports leagues uh, in terms of being a moneymaker uh, and really changing how sports are watched. Kevin, what is your take on all this? You know, I think it's great for the game. Uh, it's great for all of the professional sports. I mean, I saw, we saw Mark Cuban come out and say that, you know, the value of, you know, franchises in the big four are really going to skyrocket. Um, he was saying they would double. I'm not sure about that. But, I think it's it's great for everyone involved in sports. I know it's going to be great for the media. There's going to be more money involved in sports. There's going to be it's going to be great uh, for the players themselves um, because the leagues are going to make more money. They're going to take a portion of all the money made on betting. So let's say if someone bets on an NBA game, the NBA is going to get a little portion of that, and the government's going to get a little portion of that. So there's more money being spread around, which more money for the league equals more money for the players. Um, you know, I think it's a win-win, and it's, it's great. It's definitely great for the fan experience. Um, you know, I could see a time where you're watching an NBA game, and there's an NBA betting app where you bet who's going to make the next shot or something ridiculous like that. You know, it, it really adds to the fan experience. Uh, while gambling can be a dangerous issue with you know people getting addicted to it, uh, you know, it, it can cause other ha uh, health issues um, like alcoholism and you know drug abuse, but at the same time, it's going to be great for you know all, all parties involved, and I'm excited to see how it evolves over time because I think you know apps and websites, you know they're gonna you know, they're gonna come out. Um, you know, DraftKings and FanDuel probably didn't want this um, simply off the fact that people were already using their website, and now you know other websites are you know legally allowed allowed to do things, and you know the leagues are are going to start taking money away from them, and same with the government, but. I think it's great for the sport. It's great for all parties involved, and I'm excited to see how it evolves over time. Yeah, I mean, keep in mind that this is now, since it's been striked down from a federal level, uh, every state is going to have the opportunity to kind of levy rulings here. And so the, the, it's going to be tough for leagues 
uh, and players unions, you got to keep in mind that the players are going to want a piece of this portion, this pie too, because you know they're the ones who are out there doing everything, and, and you know what's being bet on is them, not necessarily the league itself. So uh, there's going to be you know th those kind of disputes within each league as to how they're going to handle it. But also, those each leagues have to deal with each state. You know, what is the individual state law going to be uh, for New York versus for Florida? Are they going to be you know run the same way? Is is MLB going to have the same policy? going across the board for all the states, or are they going to have to work out an individual uh, agreement with them? Um, and, and I think that's really the biggest debate here is who gets the biggest piece of the pie? Is it going to be the leagues? Is it going to be the states? Is it going to be the players' unions? Um, you know, where where are all of those, uh, you know, divides going to be? Uh, and I think that, you know, there is going to be a huge boost in money. I mean, you are talking about potential for a billion dollars per sport per year. Uh, just in terms of revenue um, that can be brought in, in in a variety of ways. I mean, we might be seeing, you know, in-game, in-stadium kiosks for, you know, you go up to the bar uh, at, a, at, a, at a baseball game and they're saying, okay, you know, what is the odds that the, the you know, the Braves score two runs in this inning? You know, how, how much are you going to put down for that? And it, there's a kiosk right there and you can do it kind of similar to like what horse tracks have right now uh, when you can go bet on horse races. And, and it looks like this could almost be, you know, opening the door for, for stadiums to make more money. You know, you, you talk about how um, when owners go to a new city and they want to have a stadium built. And they can't afford it themselves, so they ask the state to pay for it. A lot of times, states are, are reluctant to do so because, one, that's like a you know $700 million project that they would have to fund. But also, they're wondering, you know, where do we get this revenue? And what the, the teams have to say is, well, you know, this is going to become a local hotspot, and you're going to have all this stuff going into uh, local areas. You can set up little government uh, shops and things like that to help you make money. Uh, and, and, you know, it's not necessarily a, a driven model that's proven to, to bring in a lot of money. And, you know, teams like the Marlins and, and, and baseball, uh, you know, that park has been was federally or state funded and has been a disaster for the, for the, the state of Florida. They have not been bringing in nearly as much revenue as they thought they were going to. <coughs> and it has really hurt them financially because they made such an investment that has not been paying off. But now, you know, teams can say, hey, you'll get this chunk of whatever is bet on, on our site, you know, at the games. And if we're bringing in this many fans, you know, we can estimate that this is how much they're going to bet and this is how much you're going to make. And honestly, that's going to be huge uh, in terms of, you know, teams being or states being more willing to, you know, build bigger ballparks. We might be seeing nicer ballparks, lower prices uh, for tickets because, you know, they're not going to need to charge as much. They're going to say, hey, you, you buy this cheaper ticket you'll get a $5 voucher to go bet this. And, and a lot of times, you know, when you get a voucher to bet something, you're not going to go beyond that voucher. You're not just going to bet, you know, the $5 they give you. You're going to say like, ah, oh, well, since I already got five, you know, and I win five, I'll just throw in 20 more. And, and, and that adds up. So this is a huge, huge money-making potential. And personally, you know, obviously there's going to be some, some you know, drawbacks from people. Uh, umpires in Major League Baseball have, you know, Joe West, the most prominent umpire there is, has come forward and said he hates this and thinks it's going to be horrible because fans are already relentless uh, when it comes to a missed call. And now there's going to probably, you know, with money on the line, they might take that to an extreme. And, and, and you know, he's concerned for their umpire safety. Some players are, are, are concerned as well as, you know, I strike out and I'm going to be not only hearing boos from uh, you know, my fans, but also all these people that, you know, 
had money riding on on him reaching base in that at bat. So there's a whole lot of factors that go into this. And yes, you know, the morality thing, like you mentioned, is also a, a, another issue that you know they need to be cognizant of. Um, but in terms of, of uh, financial gain and the potential that this has. I think this opens so many doors uh, and honestly could change the way we view sports in general. We might see betting take over the entire landscape of watching sports in that, you know, your daily columns in the newspaper are not just going to include, you know, predictions of who's going to win. It's going to include betting lines, over-unders, uh, you know, how much you should put on this, what players are trending in this direction, all these kind of, uh, of statistics that you probably aren't seeing very much right now because this wasn't legalized. Um, you know, maybe on some lower blogs and things like that. But now this might be so mainstream that it changes the entire landscape of sports. And, and you know, obviously some people are going to be on the flip side of that and say, oh, that's going to take away from watching the game. I don't want to worry about betting or money. Or I just want to enjoy the sport. And obviously, you know, that's part of it. But it was like what we talked about in the last show, sabermetrics changing baseball and how it's watched. That's just the way things are going with everything so analytically driven these days and computers being able to crunch all these numbers. You know, it all is just put there right in front of you where honestly, I think it enhances the game and makes it more enjoyable to watch simply because you have that much more insight. You can, if you're a fan who likes to bet, you have that much more ability to make correct bets and have a potential to make more money. And, you know, honestly, I'm all for it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think we're fooling ourselves if we uh, say that sports betting isn't already going on, uh, especially illegally. So, you know, while Joe West has, you know, uh, a really good point with, you know, how, you know, the fans are going to become more relentless and such. I still think, you know, people are relentless nowadays because they play fantasy sports. You know, they're still doing DraftKings, fan duels. They're, they're doing all these, you know, different fantasy, daily fantasy and season fantasy, uh, you know, programs that one guy getting hit really does rely, uh, really does, you know, shift the way someone makes money or, you know, it, you know, it's still huge nowadays. It, it's just going to get bigger. I understand his concern, but we're kidding ourselves if we don't think that sports betting isn't already a prominent part of sports. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, fans are already, you know, getting drunk at games and, and, and being pretty relentless about it. So, you know, you could have measures to uh, prevent that. Things like, you know, the kiosk must be this much distance from, uh, the, the home you know home plate or the field or, or where, whatever you know sport it is you know saying like okay the guys that are going to be hanging around around these kiosks and bending areas can't be close enough where the players can hear what they're saying um, you know that's a potential for you know that obviously on social media you're not going to be able to stop people from you know voicing their uh, displeasure uh, with people on there but like you said I mean it's already happening you're seeing it all over the place you know fa- people put money on fantasy leagues all the time. And, uh, you know, place bets with bookies on offshore uh, accounts and things like that. So, you know, yes, it's already happening. Um, But like I said, I think it enhances the game. I think that it it provides an element that we just haven't seen before. Um, And I'm excited for where it's going to take things. I think that, you know, the sports, uh, you know, obviously aren't lacking ways of bringing in revenue. But this just opens up a whole new door uh, for, you know, maybe new fans. Like, you know, a lot of you know Major League Baseball is struggling with bringing in fans. Uh, just in general, this might be a way for it to reach a younger fan base. And, you know, people who, you know, studies show that millennials are, are very bet heavy. They like going to Vegas. They like, you know, betting on things. And, and this could be an avenue for, you know, teams to really, you know, take advantage of that. I think the one uh, aspect of the betting that needs to be, you know, people need to be wary of is, okay, making sure, obviously, that players aren't going to be betting and, and umpires and things like that. And, you know, obviously, that's already being, you know, enforced. So those are rules against that. Pete Rose is a 
you know, a landmark case uh, against that. But you also have to be careful of what you propagate as bets. I think they're going to have to set restrictions, uh, considering this is all going to be state run, on what you can bet. So, for example, you, you can't have a prop bet that says, will this pitcher walk a guy in his first uh, plate appearance today? You know, he has the control of that, and he could have somebody bet for him uh, saying he'll walk the guy. And, you know, obviously it's a low-risk uh, thing to do. You, you walk a dude, you can still, you know, get through the inning just fine. So I think, you know, having prop bets like that um, can be dangerous. Uh, you have to definitely make sure that players on the sidelines, players in the dugouts, uh, players, you know, on the bench aren't able to contact people from outside um, their team, you know, through the internet and, and, and be communicating with people saying, oh, but, you know, don't, uh, you know, make sure you're doing this, make, uh, you know, this is the bet that I just placed for you. Uh, you know, so when you start the second quarter, don't do that. I think those things have to be especially scrutinized to make sure they don't happen. Um, but, you know, these are all, these concerns, they're all very minor, in my opinion, uh, just because they can be, you know, measures can be taken to prevent them. Yes, there's always going to be cheaters. I mean, there's, there's, you know, no matter what you do, there's going to be somebody that tries to cheat the system. And you're going to, you know, the first time we hear about somebody, you know, participating in a bet, it's going to be, you know, this huge thing. Oh, should we recall, you know, the state law? Should this be changed? Blah, 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 blah. And yeah, it's probably not going to be a perfect system at first, and they'll have to make amendments as they go along. But, you know, that's the human element of everything. And, you know, to me, what this says is, okay, how, what changes are they going to have to make? What are they going to have to foresee down the line? And a big thing is, to me, you know, if from a baseball, you know, fanatic perspective, are they going to have to have automated strike zones moving forward? Because, you know, now that money is going to be riding even more on the line in terms of fans and displeasure uh, with rulings, especially ones that are incorrect, are you going to have to have an automated strike zone to make sure that, you know, that the, the MLB is not pissing off a fan base. I think that this might be a way that that actually ends up happening. You know, people talk about it as it might be, you know, farther down the line. I think with this Supreme Court ruling, we're going to be seeing automated strike zones a lot sooner uh, than I we originally thought. And, and you know, as much as that sucks and, and that might take away from the human element of the game, uh, in order for all of this to happen, it might be an unnecessary thing that, or, or necessary uh, thing, excuse me, that has to happen. And, you know, if that's what it is, it is what it is. But, um, you know, we're going to have to, the leagues are going to have to anticipate things like that. And, you know, NBA post-game reports where they say like, oh, okay, you know, that, you know, this call made in the last two minutes was incorrect and uh, it should have gone this way. I think all leagues are going to have to adapt that kind of system as well. Uh, you know, like Major League Baseball had a game with the, the uh, Cubs and Braves the other day. Uh, where a guy was called out of the plate, Braves runner, um, was called out of the plate, and they challenged that replay uh, and lost it. Although the replay kind of showed that they he was safe, they still lost replay. But there was also a guy who ran to third and was called out there uh, on the throw, and they couldn't challenge that play, and he was clearly safe. They couldn't challenge that play because they had lost the original one. And Major League Baseball has yet to release any kind of statement uh, on that play. And, you know, if, if we're talking about players, you know, people who – that was a one-run game at the time. Uh, you know, that could have, there was a difference between two and one and three, two to one and three and one, uh, you know, a lot of sports bettors would have been up in arms about it saying, you know, you cost me money, blah, blah, blah. So there's going to have to be more accountability across the board, certainly. Uh, but as long as the leagues, you know, plan ahead for these things, I'm, uh, I think it's going to be a huge success. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I agree with the whole player take. I think that a lot of these players make so much money that it's not even worth you know, risking your entire career uh, just to, you know, bet on one one play, one game. 
Um, you know, you see with Pete Rose, I mean, he's been banned from the game of baseball for years uh, because he bet. And, I, you know, I think if he were able to go back, uh, he would take that back because that was a you know huge mistake. And he, he might not ever make the Hall of Fame because of it. So, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, um, but I just think these players have too much of an incentive to play out in the field and not get in trouble. Um, and, you know, there might be a couple of players that do it and get in trouble, but I think there's just too big of an incentive, especially in basketball. Um, where they're making all guaranteed, and baseball, they're making all guaranteed money. Uh, you know, there's just too much incentive. Well, you know, you say that, and, you know, Robinson Cano is making uh, $250 million, uh guaranteed money, but, and yet he's still but, caught for PEDs. But that decision that he made to break the rules helped him make more money, whereas someone betting but he's, uh, he's on a game, someone betting, contract. look at this, look at this, listen, the, dip, the return on cheating with PEDs in baseball is way more than making a bet on a Major League Baseball game. Robinson Cano easily could have made himself $100 million by taking PEDs, whereas a sports bet is not going to make you $100 million. You understand what I'm saying? Uh, so the risk... Not one, the risk, I think eventually you know you do enough. And, and I'm not talking about players like Robinson Cano's status doing it. I'm talking about players who, you know, like Brad Peacock or, or you know Zach Godley, guys that, that aren't household names uh you know maybe might be struggling to to make their way make the you know maybe they get a low amount of money in arbitration and they're they're pissed off about it and and this is what they decide to do i don't think it's going to be any you know high profile players i think it's going to be the lower guys and a, lo- a couple uh, listen to a fangraphs podcast uh where they talked about how in the minor leagues you know they get paid next to nothing uh, and, and, you know, are they going to get any revenue share from all of this? Because if they aren't and, and their their salaries don't go up, you know, they have very thankless jobs having to travel so much. Uh, nobody goes to their games. They don't get paid very much. And, you know, they have all the incentive in the world to, you know, when they're obviously not scrutinized as much as other people are, they're not under the spotlight as much as, you know, major league athletes are. Uh, they might be the ones who are actually, you know, more susceptible to doing it. And so, you know, those are kind of things that you just have to consider, even though, you know, it's not likely that we're going to see an epidemic of of betting among players. I definitely don't think that's going to happen. You know, for the most part, I like to give players the benefit of the doubt that they're, you know, good people. And, you know, when I see them out on the field and, and, and you know, like watching them play, I like to think that off the field that they're just as fun to watch and and fun to be around. So, you know, obviously, you know, I'm not saying that it's going to be an epidemic. I do think that it's a problem that you have to just be prepared for and, and something that you can... There are options for planning ahead. So I think, you know, obviously, if I'm talking about it, the leagues are going to be talking about it um, and considering those kind of things. So uh, I'm just saying that, you know, planning ahead is definitely a safer bet than just, you know, saying, oh, we'll give all players the benefit of the doubt. They're going to be just fine. And then running into some scandals down the line. Yeah, I I definitely understand what you're saying. Um, You know, the guys who get paid less, it's not just minor league baseball. You know, it's the D League. It's, um, you know, you know, it, it could also go into college sports. Are they going to allow it in college sports? Yeah, that's, uh, betting, that's betting. Um, that's, you know, that is, is that gets a lot right more now. that gets a lot more uh, confusing and complex. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll talk about that another day because that's that's a whole another issue. Um, if they were able to do that in college sports, uh, there'd be a lot of revenue, especially in college football and college basketball. But you know, is is that adding too much complication to the game? Um, but Going back to what you said, you know, I think it's great for the game of baseball. It's going to take a lot more monitoring. I know Major League Baseball and, you know, other professional sports are definitely going to have to add people um, to their staff to be able to monitor all these players and make sure they're not betting and monitor all of the betting 
um, to make sure, you know, everyone's playing the game the right way. Uh, but, you know, I think it's great revenue-wise for all parties involved. I agree, and I'm all for it. You know, I'm obviously not going to be partaking in the betting, uh, considering going into journalism, but, um, you know, maybe uh, this might open up a door for sports journalists to, you know, expand their kind of coverage. You know, they're going to be uh, writers who solely focus on the betting side of the game and, and you know, are, are the bet guys who uh, are there, you know, analyzing and, and predicting bets. I mean, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, this is this is opening an entirely new can of worms that, you know, we really haven't seen uh, in terms of, you know, American sports. You know, obviously overseas, uh, you know, soccer is bet on all the time and there's a ton of uh, other models that other countries have used uh, that I'm certainly, I'm sure will be looked at. Um, but, you know, it, it's it's honestly right now with obviously nothing happening right away. Uh, it's just an exciting thought and something that has really been at the forefront of all sports conversations. So um, I'm glad we got to jump into it. Our final thing uh, we want to talk about today are the Dodgers. Uh, the Dodgers right now are sitting on a record of 16 and 26 that is combined with the Marlins for the fifth worst record in all of baseball. Right now, they would be contending for a lottery pick if this were the NBA. Uh, and, you know, with the expectations that they had of almost running away with the NL West, you know, despite the fact that they had three teams make the playoffs last year, this has been an absolute disappointment of a season. I mean, if you take into context here, if the Dodgers were to play 600 baseball, you know, 600 uh, winning percentage. That's the record that the Phillies have right now. If they were to play like the Phillies have all year, they would win 87 games. I mean, they need to play on it like the Yankees in order to make the playoffs at this point to win 90 games. I mean, this is a team that, you know, won the NL pennant, uh, was one game away from winning the World Series last year. And for them to fall this far, I mean, yeah, they have been destroyed by injuries. Clayton Kershaw's on the DL. Hyunjin Ryu's on the DL. Rich Hill has been dealing with blister issues. Corey Seager's out for the year with Tommy John. Justin Turner just came back uh, you know, from an injury himself. They have just been riddled. Yasiel Puig on the DL. I mean, the Dodgers cannot catch a break. They were just passed by the Padres uh, in the division standings for the NL West. They're now at the bottom of the NL West. I mean, they are in you know, conversations with all these rebuilding teams, you know, obviously the Orioles are kind of in that conversation too of, of massive disappointments, but the Orioles didn't have, uh, you know, expectations that the Dodgers did coming into the year. I mean, being in a division with the Red Sox and Yankees, they weren't really, you know, obviously the Baltimore Orioles going for it, but they weren't expected to win the division by any means. The Dodgers were considered favorites to win the World Series this year. I mean, they were universally considered to be the best team in the National League uh, coming into the season along with maybe the Cubs and the Nats, um, but they have been so far a massive disappointment. Kevin, do you think they can dig themselves out of this hole? I mean, they've lost six in a row, and they're losing the bad teams. They they got swept in a four-game series to the Reds. They just lost to the Marlins, didn't play well against the Padres. I mean, this is a league with, with, with these tanking teams. You've got to be able to just blow these teams out uh, to get those rack up those easy wins. That way, you know, you don't have to put as much pressure on yourself to win in games against good teams. But we're not seeing that. They're just losing to bad teams. And, and at, a, at a certain point, you have to, you know, say – you know, enough is enough. It's no longer early in the season. They're six weeks in, and for them to only have 16 wins so far in, in 40-plus games, you know, that is really cause for concern. You know, I think the Dodgers are a much better team than 16-26. and 26. I'll put it that way. I mean, I know they've lost um, to some bad teams, and they've also, you know, been passed by the Padres in the standings. That's um, ridiculous, but I still think they're better than 16-26. and 26. While I don't think they can dig themselves out enough to make the playoffs, 
I do think they'll dig themselves out and win it, you know, 82 to 85 games. I still think they're a great baseball team. You know, they're going to get some guys back from injury uh, over the season. And, you know, they still have a lot of talent on their roster. Uh, and I'm not ready to give up on them. But to, to say they're going to make the playoffs and be able to win like the Yankees the rest of the year in order to do so, I just don't see it happening. So, uh, you know, tough start for them. And I think they dug themselves enough of a hole where they can't make the playoffs. I agree. I mean... Honestly, it got gets to the point for me where you know it doesn't even look like this is a team that is certainly better than the record. I think that this is a team that is playing to its record. I mean, you're you're seeing guys like you know Cody Bellinger <coughs> regressing uh, a little bit toward you know from last year had an outstanding rookie season, obviously ran away with the NL Rookie of the Year award. But you know we're seeing the league adjust to him a little bit. Um, you know, he only has six home runs on the year, not necessarily blowing anybody away in terms of his uh, homer numbers. And if it weren't for Matt Kemp having a, a resurgence, um, you know, this offense really wouldn't have anyone aside from Yasmani Grandal leading the way, uh, you know, which is, is crazy. You know, Chase Utley having a decent start to the year, too. Um, but guys that you're really not used to, you know, guys that you were coming to the year saying, oh, they're not going to be the focal points of our offense. It's going to be guys like Bellinger and Seager, uh, Chris Taylor, Yasiel Puig. And it's not. These guys, I mean, Yasiel Puig's OPS Plus is 56. I mean, that is awful. He's hitting 202 on the year. Um, healthy now, but was on a DL earlier this year. And then the pitching staff, I mean, obviously, with Kershaw down, that hurts. Ryu was having a great start to the season at a 2-1-2 ERA. But Rich Hill, 6.2. Alex Wood, uh, you know, league, uh, about league average, a little bit better with a 3-3-5, 1-13 ERA+. Plus. Um, but Kenta Maeda, not, not a great start. Walker Bueller has been a revelation for them, but they weren't expecting him to be playing a major role coming into the year. He's been a guy that they've had to kind of call up and, and hope for the best. And yes, it's worked out, but, you know, he's 23. This is his first major league season. We'll see what, you know, happens as the season goes on. Kenley Jansen got off to a horrible start. He's definitely picked things up as of late, you know, is playing a little bit better now. Um, but, you know, guys like Pedro Baez has been awful. JT Chargoy has been dreadful. Tony Singrani's on the DL, a guy that they, you know, have to rely on a lot. Uh, one of their key left-handers out of the pen. I, I, I just can't see anything really, you know, like you have to, a lot of these teams that, you know, have gotten off to slow starts, you identify, okay, they have a key bad reason. With the Nats, it was their bullpen. You know, the, the, they definitely were struggling late in games. They had some injuries on the offensive side that, you know, thought, okay, maybe they'll, they'll be playing better eventually. Um, but Cubs, it was their starting pitching. You know, they, they're back. Jose Quintana, you Darvish have not been playing up to par. With the Dodgers, it has just been everywhere. I mean, they're, they've had you know, lack of offense production. They're, they're struggling to stay healthy. Their rotation is not deep at all. And their bullpen has one guy who imploded. Their closer imploded at the start of the year, and everybody else has sucked since. So I, I, I don't see, like you said, any way for them to make playoffs. And I, honestly, I don't even know if there's a way for them to reach 80 wins at this point. They just don't look like they're a team that you know, is going to be able to flip the switch anymore just because they're stacked with so many injuries. You know, losing Corey Seager cannot be overstated in terms of this offense. I mean, you know, obviously getting Justin Turner back is going to be a boost there. Um, but, they, they, you know, where is the protection for him in the lineup? I mean, is it really just going to be him and Matt Kemp leading the way the whole year? I, I can't imagine that's, you know, going to be a recipe for success. So, for me, the Dodgers are done. We're, we got to look at the, the Diamondbacks and, and the Rockies uh, and you know, maybe the Giants, but I don't really believe they're going to be in it. Uh, as is the class of this NL West for the rest of the year, because LA's out of it. I mean, there's really no way, no way to you know get around that. Yeah, you know what team this reminds me of? I think it was the 2014, 2013 Nationals that won about 81 games. Uh, very similar. 
a lot of potential on the roster, you know, picked by a lot of people to, you know, not only, not only win the division, but, you know, maybe win the national league. And this seems very similar to that. Yeah. Yeah. The 2013 and 2015 nationals were very uh, disappointing, especially the 2015 team that only won 83 games. I think that's the one you're referring to. And they answered the lead the season uh, with that pitching staff of, of Scherzer, Jordan Zimmerman, Strasburg, Doug Fister, um, and Tanner Roark had to be relegated to the bullpen. Gio Gonzalez, obviously, was the last guy there. You know, the guy who had, who, you know, had a 2-5 ERA the season before was put in the bullpen uh, because they just simply didn't have enough strength pitching, and yet they still couldn't make the playoffs. You know, and that was Bryce Harper's MVP season, too. I mean, the fact that they were they squandered that year is just awful. Um, but you're right. I mean, this is a team that's worse, though. I mean, this is a team in a league where we talk about how tanking teams are ruining the league, and, you know, we could put a lock on all these teams that were just going to be bottom feeders. There was no way around it. And for the most part, we've been right uh, in terms of the standings. You know, our usual suspects, the White Sox. We knew the Royals were going to be bad. The Reds and the Marlins, Padres, all those teams uh, were going to be pretty bad this year. Um, but, you know, the, for the Dodgers to be in the middle of that conversation, you know, losers of six in a row right now, not even playing against good teams. You know, they have a series against the Nationals this weekend who are, you know, since uh, I think it's the last three weeks, are the hottest team in baseball it does not look, you know, like good uh, a good uh, way for the Dodgers to get back on track here, uh, and I don't really see them, you know, being able to pick things up. And as disappointing as that is, with you know a team like the Dodgers who uh, are, you know, such such an exciting team with Dave Roberts, a manager who you can't help but fall in love with, with his upbeat energy all the time. I mean, even he uh, in a post game press conference a couple games ago, you know, when they were up by four with three innings left to go and the bullpen went and blew it. You know, he just looked lost in his post-game press conference, just so, you know, disfigured, unable to, to give reasons as to why this team is just keeps on losing. You know, obviously, you know, he shows up the next day and is back to his normal self, but, you know, that's what he has to do. That's what he has to, you know, try and, and you know, pump up this team with some kind of positivity because there's just none to go around right now, and I don't see any reason for them to be positive about anything this season because, you know, this is, this is Clayton Kershaw's last year before his opt-out, and, you know... I don't think that he's going to freak out over one year and say, oh, I'm not re-signing with the Dodgers. No way. But I do definitely think he's going to take his opt-out and is going to be commanding a lot of money. And if, you know, he gets an offer from a team, you know, maybe like the Cardinals make the playoffs this year, or the Cubs are willing to negotiate uh, for a contract. Obviously, this is going to be a very big offense uh, or free agent uh, market, and there's going to be a lot of money going around. But Kershaw's going to be at the forefront of that, and he's going to get one of the biggest contracts offered. And I, I can't imagine, you know, him at least not considering, you know, with the, the way this Dodgers team reacted and, and, and how, you know, this season went with me on the disabled list, what if I go to another team who might be able to, you know, still win even when I'm not there? And yes, the Dodgers have proven that they could over the past few years, but, you know, obviously recent memory is going to be a big part of that. So I think Kershaw's going to at least entertain the thought uh, of, you know, going to another team and we might not be seeing him as a lifetime Dodger after this season. Yeah, definitely. It's it's going to be interesting uh, to see, you know, what they what they do um, come trade deadline. Do they, you know, trade some guys um, or keep them? Are they buyers or sellers? Most likely sellers rather than buyers. But uh, it'll be very interesting to see what the Dodgers do at the trade deadline as well. Yes, sir. They might be sellers, and I don't know. You know, who do we see? We see Yasiel Puig get traded. Not that anyone would really want him right now. Um, but you know, there's, there's a couple guys on that roster with expiring contracts. Matt Kemp might be a great, uh, candidate to be traded, uh, you know, with him not having a lot of years left on his deal. I think it's one more season after this one off the top of my head. 
Um, but you know, we'll see. Uh, I'm. Uh, it's definitely one of the biggest storylines in baseball right now, and not for a good reason. So um, we'll have to just kind of wait and watch the the season unfold uh, and go from there. All right, well, that's going to wrap up our show for today. Sorry we couldn't talk NHL. Of course, Tom is uh, on family vacation right now and wasn't able to uh, join us, but he's hoping to get back very soon uh, to talk some Stanley Cup playoff, uh, finals uh, once we get over to that. So uh, we will keep you all tuned on that as to when uh, we'll get some NHL talk back in here. But for now, you'll have to sit with some baseball and, and basketball analysis because that's um, you know what's, what's been dominating the, the storylines right now. I'm Matt Wyrick. This is Kevin Haswell. We are signing off on today's show. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Pure Sports Net. Like us on Facebook at Pure Sports Network. And check out our website at puresportsnetwork.com. Kevin, any final words for the good people? Don't lose faith in LeBron. That's all I got to say. Yeah, I already have. No, not LeBron, but the Cavs. And uh, we'll have to wait and see. I'm sure the next pod will be uh, full of I told you so's uh, one way or the other. All right. Thank you yep. all so much for listening and have a good one. Thanks, guys. Thank you.